Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today is on a remarkable journey, impassioned to help others live healthy lives, all about health and wellness. She served as a medical, clinical, and research scientist in the pharmaceutical, nutraceutical, and biotechnology industries. Her companies, including J&J, Biogen, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. She's a creator at heart, having started numerous enterprises. Her book, Cure the Causes, is being translated into 26 languages, and she has 12 more books in development. She's a role model of lifelong learner, from majoring in criminalistics and criminal science and psychology to getting doctorates in psychology and philosophy and continued postdoc work in nanotechnology and bioengineering. And while she's had many professional roles, she is most proud to be a mother of four, a daughter, sister, friend, wife, and cancer survivor. A very warm welcome to Dr. Christina Rahm. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on your show. I really am. I love what it stands for. Well, I love what you stand for, and it's a real privilege for me to have a chance to chat with you, and I'm really keen for listeners to hear from you. I am wowed by the range you have and all you do and how you've turned your struggles with health into helping others live super healthy lives and you seem to have found your own true north and made the choice to find success on your terms, which is really what I hope for all those listening. Um, so I'm really grateful uh, for you taking time to share your journey with us. Thank you so much. It's been a journey like everyone's, and I'm, I'm glad that I get to share a little bit of it today. So take us from the beginning, you know, growing up, little girl somewhere. Yeah, yeah I grew up in a small town of Dexter, Missouri. Uh, in the boot hill of Missouri, and it was a farming town. And so um, I was a premature baby, so really sick as a little kid, um, but had a lot of energy. Um, I was a tomboy. I used to climb to the top of, of the trees and and had a, a very vivid imagination. For third grade, I asked for a National Geographic and a thesaurus, and I was really about learning I knew that I would travel all over. I knew that um, I would do things. I really wanted to be like Gandhi or Mother Teresa and really help humanity. And my mother was like, but you're not Catholic. You're not Hindu. <laughs> and I was like, I know, but I, I want to help people all over the world. And I knew this as a young child. I would say, you know, by the time I was five um, and it was, but, you know, I, I had this upbringing where my one side of the, the my grandparents, they were. Um, businessmen and farmers and educators. I, I came from really a really neat family. Um, the other side, they were farmers and also business educators. So I was exposed to that really on both sides. Um, but my parents met when they were 13 and 14 and then stayed together and were amazing parents. They really were. Um, but they really protected me. So I and I had an older sister and a younger brother, but with me, they were, they always said I was special and I hated that. I used to say, what does that mean? I don't like being called special. And my mom was pretty protective of me. Um, she said people always wanted to come talk to me and um, 
I don't know. They were they were extremely protective. So I didn't. They, they had me in everything from, you know, ballet to gymnastics to tennis to piano, guitar, trumpet. I could go on and on. They had me in everything. They they literally exposed me to everything in the world. Even though I grew up in this small town, they would travel to take me to to be on different teams or to learn how to do things. So they kept me extremely busy, which was good because I was I was the kind of person that had. I really did. Despite being sick, I had endless energy and um, was kind of probably a nerd, I might say. Even though I was in all these activities, I was really like my mom used to make me leave my room because I just would want to read. And I had friends, but I, I had a lot of friends actually in the small town because my family was pretty well known in that town. Um but I kind of always felt like an outsider, and I'm not sure that's ever really changed. Uh, I, I was different. I, I, you know, I don't know if I fit into that town. You know, of five thousand people, my my dreams, my aspirations, and it was nothing against that town because the most amazing people are in that town. It was just that for some reason I knew that I wouldn't stay there, and I was going to do different things. But, you know, I, they had me in extra classes and, and everything growing up. And I had these, again, these dreams of helping and healing. And I used to make these concoctions to try to help my friends get better. And I would cook and make these these different foods. I was very creative. Um, but I was sheltered. Like I said, I didn't understand. Like in that town, if someone says they're going to do something, they do it. And, you know, there were there were times where I was bullied as a kid or, um, you know, I felt like an outsider at times, like I said, but my parents really developed, like they, they put me, I'll give you an example. When I went on the first date I ever went on, I was 17. I'd never kissed anyone. I was really like into just learning, not even into boys. I didn't really understand. I was just into being me. And like I said, I was a tomboy and, um, my, but my dad followed me to the movie. I'll never forget this and waited outside and then followed me home. <laughs> so it was, you know, I mean, and so I, I, it really fast forward to today. It's been shocking to me actually when I really got into the business world to realize how things were because I didn't really experience that. That being said though, I will tell you this. My parents made sure I never quit anything. So if I started something, I had to be in that sport for the whole time or in that play or whatever I was in. And um, I ended up, you know, I ran the 800 a mile for the the track team in in high school and I was state champ. You know, I won state. I did all these different things in track, but I hated it. But they made me do it because I was good at it. And that really taught me perseverance. It taught me, um, you know, to to do things I don't want to do and to be strong. It Growing up on a farm, if I had to get up at five o'clock to do things and I got up at 5 a.m., there was never excuse. It didn't matter what time I went to bed. It didn't matter what my excuse was. I got up. If I was sick, they made me go to school. It was always that, you know, Christina, if you want to do all these things in your life, then you have to keep going. And that really stuck with me. Even fast forwarding to when I got Lyme's disease uh, and the doctor said, you know, she's lost her memory. I lost my hair. I lost my eyelashes. I was like embarrassed to go to college again. And my parents were like, she's good. You're going to go to college and you're going to do even better now than you did before. And I was like, how's that going to happen? I can't even remember my name or my address. And 
uh, because I ended up getting meningitis from the from the Lyme disease. But my parents were were adamant that I was going to because I had to learn in life that despite any adversity, that I couldn't quit. And I know a lot of people might think that was uncalled for, but I'm so thankful for that at this point. I'm thankful I grew up in the town I grew up in. I'm thankful for the challenges I've had in my life. Um, and, you know, those challenges have ever have actually never stopped. So it was good that they taught me that at a young age. Well, I'm a little breathless because you're, you're still such a young person. And I I just can't even imagine how scary the having Lyme's disease, meningitis. And so when you got to college, was that something where you were just so focused on being healthy. I mean, I, I, I mean, I just, just, I never went through that, you know, and, and you're yeah. just amazing for, for persevering through it. Yeah. You know, um, I, I actually, I was always into my health. My mother, uh, my, my mother was actually raised by her grandmother who was Cherokee and Choctaw and her um, grandfather was from Scotland, Ireland. He was a pretty wealthy businessman that started businesses all over the town. They had had four children, but my grandmother, Merritt, actually got pregnant when she was very young. And she actually went to Peabody and, and Vanderbilt, but she got pregnant very young. So my mother was raised by my great-grandmother, who was like my grandmother, to be honest. Um, and we were always around different herbs, different natural. I remember that we never went to the doctor. Like they would put salve on us or aloe vera, you know, all these different things. They would make us drink natural cures. And, and my father was the same way, you know, his family came from the middle East and Germany and then over to the United States. But it was just, I have to say they were tough families. They, they literally, the women around me, this is very interesting to me now that I'm older. Um, you know, my grandmothers had master's degrees. And then back then that was unheard of. And the, but, but I was raised in a Southern community. So I want to say this as successful as I realized now my grandmothers were, they were very subservient. Uh, They were, you know, women took a different role in the South where I was raised. And I still remember, you know, my grandmother being Cherokee and Choctaw. And it was something we didn't really talk about because it wasn't really accepted in that town, even though they had money for that town, because I say for that town, because, you know, it was a small farming community. And when you have money or you're successful in those towns, you don't show it anyway, because you're, you're really raised um, in the, the heartland of, of the country and you don't show wealth, you know, you just show hard work. But I think that a lot of where I am today is because of how I was raised and how, The first option for us was never to go to the doctor. It was to help you get, you know, to get better. And we were always exposed to trying to eat healthy and to doing things to help our bodies. I mean, working out was was not an option. It's what we had to do. We were always in physical activities. And I'll also say this. My mother and father had different religious beliefs, but my mother was the pianist and the choir director in church. And my mother, every morning had this jar and the table and we would have to pick out of the jar. And in that jar was something we would do that no one else would know about that we would do without telling anyone to help someone either in our family or in the community. And that taught me humility. Uh, That taught me to give every day to other people that taught me a lot. And she did that. And I didn't understand. I didn't like that she did it. And then later my father 
actually taught me a huge lesson. I wasn't doing very well in college and I had been a straight A student in high school and, um, you know, he was very upset with me. So he had a secretary write me this letter that said that um, he wouldn't even talk to me. When my dad would get mad, he just wouldn't talk to me until things were solved. And he, the letter said that I would either be a waitress, I would get out, I would drop out of school and be a waitress, or I would go to school and my sister, um, I would go where my sister was in school so she could watch me because she was a year older than me. And I, you know, basically replied back that I would be a waitress. And my dad replied back, no, that I would clean, uh, I would, I would be cleaning hotel rooms and I would go to school. <laughs> and that's, that's what I did. And he told me that I needed to learn humility and I needed to learn to serve and that that would be the best lessons I ever learned and that I would do better in school than I ever had done before. And these were the rules and it happened. And, you know, so those were kind of turning points. But during that, I said, I don't feel good. I'm sick because I actually had Lyme's disease. And he said, well, this will make you feel better. <laughs> that was the answer. Oh, so wait, wait a second. So did you clean hotel rooms? I did. You cleaned hotel rooms while you had Lyme disease. Yes. And people treated me like I was not worthy. And it was a great lesson for me. And I remember being sore. And I, don't, I wonder what my parents think about that at this point. I, I remember being tired and being sore and feeling sorry for myself. I remember crying. I remember thinking I had horrible parents um, because actually we, we had trust. Fund. I mean, both sides of my family actually did have money, but in our family, that money was not used to like be extravagant. It was used to further your education or to travel or do different things where you could learn. And, um, you know, but my parents made me continuously, I, I guess the word I would use is be humble, but they also, I, I will say this, they continuously made me look inward uh, either through prayer, meditation, natural things I would do to be better. They did not believe in they really didn't. This is this is kind of interesting because of the book I wrote. Um, they didn't believe in me just going to a doctor. They actually didn't believe, it, which is funny because I have a niece and a nephew that are doctors. We have a lot of doctors in our family. Um, but they believed in us healing ourselves. They really did. They believed in the power of prayer or meditation. They believed in natural things, healing us, and they believed in the power of our own bodies. And so I think that's really been a foundation for me, honestly, throughout my life. And my grandmothers were the same way. So it was like we were part of this system in our family where we, you know, we just were taught this is what you do and this is how it is. That is just remarkable. And we know that the body is an amazing organism and so yeah. self-healing but to have that it's just it's just, i'm just it's, if i weren't hearing it from you i don't know <laughs> that i would actually be believing it um yeah. before we go on to so school I, you mentioned this being bullied would you say a little bit about being bullied when you were young yeah i had always had these allergies and colds and i remember there was a coach i was it was in fifth grade it was really i probably shouldn't well, this coach liked girls, right? But not me, because I always was blowing my nose. I actually was in fifth grade, like I won the presidents, like I, I did all the physical things really well. So you would have thought that he would have liked me, but I wasn't like the pretty girl or the cute girl. You know, I was a tomboy. I had, was really skinny. I um, was not attractive. Like I was, I was just 
I mean, I remember thinking, why am I not a boy? <laughs> I remember thinking like, <laughs> I don't want to be a girl. Like I, all these girls were like into all these girl things and I wasn't. And I had a lot of boyfriends. So I would play football like in uh, at recess and the girls would, you know, talk about me and they would make fun of me. And I, um, you know, and I was very smart and they didn't like that either. And even in a small town, you have that, you know, um, in that environment. And so I remember boys and girls making fun of me. And, you know, I had a sister that was very pretty. She was a year older than me. She's one of my best friends. I love her. But she was, I remember being, I wouldn't say jealous because I don't know that I, I get jealous. But I remember thinking, why is it so much easier for my sister than me? And, you know, I was just awkward. And so, I do remember at recess and I do remember coming home and crying. And I think that led me to have uh, understanding for people. I think that led me to honestly having more of an imagination and throwing my mind into reading and learning. And I would, you know, um, I would throw myself into learning about other countries and, and different languages and everything else. But it was it was hard. I, I, I didn't feel like I fed in you know, fit in, but I did have good friends. And by the time I got in high school, because of sports and because of the different things I was able to achieve, that changed. In fact, that same coach that made fun, because he made fun of me because I was always blowing my nose. And he actually made fun of me in front of all the kids. And my mother was a teacher. So she came in and had this huge argument. I still remember being proud of my mother because for taking up for me. Um, And but that same coach was the track coach in high school. And, you know, I was kind of like the star in that town and he was really nice to me, but I remember I never really um, accepted him because he was a bully. I mean, he like picked on me because as a fifth grader, you don't, you know, a teacher shouldn't pick on you for being sick or not being as attractive, but those are facts of life. I think that most of us have been through in some format in some way. And all of that, like I said, um, helped shape me, I think, to make me a better person. Oh, I, I just want to hug your parents. I'm I'm blown away. I'm blown <laughs> away by by the wisdom and the sense of what doing what they thought was right yeah. for you. Uh, so let's talk about college. Did you have a grand plan? I mean, I don't know any other criminology major, so I'm thinking, how did where where did that come from? I was majoring in political science. I wanted to be a lawyer at one point. I wanted to be an artist. I was My mother was a musician. I was an artist my whole life and um, also was in music, but not as talented as she is. And I, But I really loved using my mind. So my mother always said, you would be the perfect lawyer. And so I, but the problem is the more I looked into that, the more I didn't want to argue with people. But I actually ended up, getting an offer um, with they, they submitted my application in college to be with the uh, DOJ and also the, I think that SEC, like different groups offered me jobs. I had to do this whole background thing. They even went to like my second grade teacher and looked at everything and my parents. And um, I, you know, I was interested at one point in working in prisons and helping prisoners. I worked with pedophiles. I worked with abused kids, but I ended up really shifting that to uh, psychology. So by my senior year, I started being more focused, which is my minor, you know, in psychology. And that's where I got my master's in science and rehabilitation, psychology and counseling. I, I shifted, but I, I did apply to law school. But at the same time, I applied to graduate school, 
and I was accepted. I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do, but I did know that I wanted to help people. And by graduate school, I was starting to get better. The Lyme's disease really affected me through college. In fact, I can't believe I graduated college because I went from being the straight A student to not being able to remember anything. And it took years. And I was really on a journey to self-heal during that time by doing a lot of natural things, which I don't think is typical for college students, but I really threw myself into learning about that. And so, um, I got a graduate assistantship, so they paid for my college. I actually worked in the dean's office at two schools, Spring Hill and South Alabama, and I um, I loved people. I, I remember I was the advisor that started the Gay and Lesbian uh, Society. Like at that time, it was kind of a major deal in South Alabama because Alabama at that point was a little different. I did a lot of different things to really start groups and I look at it now where I guess people were considered different or special, you know, like me or outcast or however you, what word, whatever words you want to use. But at the same time, I was nominated for homecoming. I was president of Panalytic, Greek Woman of the Year. Like I started getting these awards. I started looking different, um, but I wasn't different. You know, the truth is I'm so glad that I was not this beautiful, young I know this sounds odd, but I'm so glad I was so ugly, like or unattractive as a kid, because I learned that what really mattered was the inside. And, you know, my mom used to always say, pretty is as pretty does, or you can't judge a book by its cover. And so by the time I started uh, looking a little different, I already had that core. I had that foundation. And another thing that happened during that, I remember when I was nominated for homecoming in the the Greek system at, at South Alabama, you had to be nominated and then they only picked, I think, three people out of all of the school. And I was one of them. And I asked my parents to come to homecoming. And my mother said, we're not coming to homecoming. And I said, my mother, by the way, was beautiful and won all kinds of awards. So <laughs> she, she said, I said, why? And she said, Christina, Christina, Jean, you can't, you can't hang an award on the wall when you die. When you die someday, no one's going to care that you won all these things or that you look pretty or that you have money. What matters is how you treat people. So, no, we're not going to come to that. And they didn't. And I felt sorry for myself. <laughs> and now I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful for the lessons that they taught me. And, and honestly, I did not have parents that neglected me. They, they did cut me off in college. Um, I ended up getting accepted to work. The governor had these positions, these internships that would work in the projects in Pritchard, Alabama. And Pritchard, Alabama is one of the worst gang areas in the United States. I don't know if it still is. It was ranked number three back then. And it's out of Mobile, but it's all, you know, it was really rough. And I was the only female and only white person chosen. And I found out later it was a joke. They were like, the Department of Youth Services were like, she'll last a week. And I actually lasted through graduate school. Uh, I started in college and I worked with gang members. I worked with kids that had killed people or were dealing drugs or had committed offenses. Uh, also worked with sexually abused kids as a house parent at night. And um, I you know, fell in love. I mean, I don't know how to say this. I, I really cared about the people that I was their probation officer. I went into the projects. My mother went, she, they wanted to come and see what I was doing in this internship. And when they came, my mom went in and my mom said, you will not do that. And if you do it, we are cutting you off. And I said, well, I'm doing it. 
so you can cut me off. And at that point, I took three other jobs and they didn't talk to me for a while. Um, they, you know, I realize now they were really worried about me and, uh, but it, it really shaped me. It, it helped me learn, you know, growing up in a small town where basically I realized now they took care of everything and then going to college and being in this environment, I really felt this need to be thrown into an environment that I didn't fit in and I had to understand. And I'm so glad I did that because, you know, now I've been to Nigeria, Lebanon, Syria, I've been all over the world that taught me not to fear that taught me to also understand that just because I came from one way of life, my way of life wasn't better, that we all have a different environment we grow up in and that you have to accept that everyone else has a different path and, and you have to listen and learn and pay attention and not just think that your way is the only way. And that, that taught me a lot of lessons. Even my parents cutting me off taught me a lot of lessons. Wow. You... <laughs> Are, you are just making me smile and just uh I'm I'm in awe. I'm absolutely in awe. I, I'm I'm actually a little bit speechless. So you you know did you did it dawn on you just how different you really were from all these people that you were just digging in, or were you just seeing were you just kind of heartfelt you're just seeing people for who they are and not really appreciating that there, there's this you know this person who doesn't really fit in here and she's found a way to make her way and and create the connection and do amazing work yeah. i'm just wondering what you were thinking when you were doing it all so you know now you know i ended up going into psychology like i said and i i uh I remember getting, when I was working on my doctorate degree, they made us go in my master's, they made us go through counseling. And they said, I, I remember it's so odd that you're asking this question. They asked me, do you feel like you've accomplished anything or what you want to accomplish? And I said, I don't think I've accomplished anything. And I actually, they told me that was a problem. They said that I didn't realize the things I was achieving. And I had this constant need that I was a workaholic and that I was, basing my happiness on performance. And that wasn't really true. And I, I, I said that I'm basing my happiness on what I'm doing to solve problems and to help other people. And I just am not doing a good enough job. And that has driven me my whole life is this, this concept of I'm here to help. This is my mission. Because I, again, I, I realized that at a young age, that's what I wanted to do. And there just seems like there was never enough time and I could never accomplish enough. So I've never at any point had any feeling at all that I've um, accomplished what I'm supposed to accomplish. I have a, a feeling all the time of what else I can do to make things better or to accomplish the things that need to be accomplished in my life. Because, you know, I believe which is why I don't think anyone should ever be jealous of anyone, because I think we each have this life that has this path. So we can, we, you know, the only challenge is ourselves. Like I need to be the best I can be. So there's never been a point in my life that I felt like great job, you know, Christina, like that was really good. Um, in fact, I, I, I struggle a lot with um, feeling like I'm not doing enough and then I need to be better. You know, as a mother, of course, that's been a, a major challenge for me. And I, I had so many health issues and I don't, I don't know if it was from Lyme disease or different things that have happened, but, you know, I ended up having a brain tumor and then I ended up 
having cancer with a child and, and losing a child and even losing twins that were girls that in the, you know, while they were in the second trimester. And so, you know, I, I think that I focused a lot on wishing I was better and, and I love myself because I think my parents gave me that gift because, you know, they unconditionally love me, but I always push myself to be better. Um, and so, no, there's never been a point where I thought, um, I was different. I think I always had this overwhelming feeling that I want to make people feel good. And a lot, some of that's changed because I went from wanting people to be happy and feeling good to wanting people to be their best and wanting people to achieve what they should achieve in their life. And I think that's been the major shift uh, in my life over the last two to three years, to be honest. That is so much uh, self-work. Do the work. Listeners have heard me say that over and over and over, and you really plunged yourself into it. Talk to us about, you know, you get to school, you're you're just passionate, you're working, you know, just pretty tirelessly and on it. And then how did your family happen and how did you manage through this? I mean, this is not, I, and I, you know, I'm sorry for the loss. It's just a lot. And I appreciate yeah. you just helping us understand what, that experience was for you? Well, probably one of my flaws is I don't, I don't spend much time in grief. Um, there's days I've cried and stayed in bed. And then by, you know, one o'clock or 11, I'm up. Um, and like, okay, now I feel sorry for myself. So I have things to do. There's some stuff in my heart I could share, but it's, it's a little bit too hard to share. Um, I've, I've had failure, I would say specifically with relationships, um, I'm just being honest with men because my whole focus, I really have always had this focus of helping others and helping people. And I don't, I never had this dream of getting married. I always did want to be around children. I love children and animals, but I always felt like I could help children in orphanages or like I told you, I worked with sexually abused kids and I always, you know, I always saw a need to help people. And I can always feel when someone needs help. I can actually feel it when I meet them. And so I didn't have this overwhelming urge to have children. Um, I've been divorced a couple of times. I was in a marriage where I walked in and uh, my ex-husband was, was with someone in our bedroom, for example. Like it was, I, I had some really, but but I don't blame situations. I was, like I said, always super focused on my career. Um, I do think I treat people good in relationships. I do think that I treat a significant other or anyone around me the same, but I also think it was, it's probably hard. It was hard back then, especially to be in a relationship with me. Um, so I would, because when, when I had my, my career where I had these goals that we're talking about, and then once I had my first child, our, his name's Duquesne. He actually works with me now. My, my older two boys work with me. I'm very close to my kids. Um, I threw myself into loving this human being and not because it came from me. I, I could have equally loved any child that was around me. I just felt like my job was to guide them and to love them unconditionally. And that kind of overtook everything for me. So it was always my children, my job, and then other people. And and so it didn't leave, I'm just being honest, it didn't leave a lot of room for a significant other in my life. 
And I know that's probably not what the audience wants to hear. Um, I think it's wonderful when people have a relationship like my parents that lasts from the time they're 13 and 14 till the time they die. I always loved my parents' relationship. But for me, you know, my journey, that just wasn't what it was. And, and that's why, you know, as a person, I always tell people this. Don't think you're going to be happy just because you're married or just because you have kids. It has to be the journey that's right for you. And, um, you know, losing children uh, when they were babies, when they were in my stomach or, or miscarrying, I miscarried a lot, um, was, was hard. But I, after I had my first son, I never thought I would have more children, but I, I, they were not planned. <laughs> I, got, I actually had a surgery, so I wouldn't have ch- more children. Uh, I was going to adopt, but I'm so very thankful for my children. And again, this goes back to, um, you know, you can't plan everything in your life and you have to accept what the world gives you. And then you have to make it the best situation possible. I am so, I couldn't love any, I, I couldn't love anyone more than I love my children. Like I just adore them. But I also have this, you know, as a mother, I feel like this is going to sound bad too. This, I feel like my children are here to provide another solution to the world. And my children are meant to be here to do good things and help other people or else why are they here? And I actually tell my children that, that you're here here for a reason, not to make yourself happy, which I hope they're happy, right? That's really important to me, but they're also here to be the best they can be, to be able to help others and to provide solutions for this world and not just to have money and power. That's not why they're here. Wise, wise, wise words and the next generation, no pressure, but we need you folks (laughs) to step up with the solutions because we need a lot of them. Uh, Christina, talk to us, segue to the business you and just some of, I mean, just we can't cover it all, but just a bit of snapshot on your um, business learnings, you know, diving into the health care um, industry and, and just, a, you know, a bit of, I mean, I, we can't talk about it at all. So just, I know that's a hard ask, but I'd love for folks to get a glimpse um, of how you took all that early youth that just was the perfect Petri dish for you to be doing what you're doing now? Well, you know, I'll say this. A lot of it was hard work. I worked really hard. Um, I threw myself into every position I've ever had. And my career actually moved very quickly from one position to the next. Um, I, a lot of stuff I fell in my, my lap. It really did. I wasn't planning on working in the pharmaceutical industry, I was working for NIMH. I was one of the youngest research directors. I, I had worked at Mobile Mental Health Center and was supervising psychologists and counselors. And then I started writing grants and the executive director offered me this position. And then I ended up writing a grant and getting it accepted because I had partnered with some very successful people. And then I was doing a talk on women and depression and offered a job from Pfizer. And I really felt like I was selling out because I was really into academia and research and writing. And, um, but I took the position so I could support my kids and I ended up loving it. Actually, I was in sales and marketing, but I ended up because of my education, they put me into these different um, basically medical marketing roles. And then I ended up in the pharmaceutical biotech, whether I was with Alexion or Biogen 
or Pfizer, Bristol Myers, they, re- they moved me over to medical clinical research because of my education. And they actually sent me back to school so I would learn more because I hadn't trained really as a scientist. That was not my intention. Even though I'd love to create, it was not the original goal. Um, and I, you know, it was, it was really fun in those companies. But then the higher I got in those companies, and it was very competitive, by the way. I talk about competitive. I remember going to Pfizer and getting tested. And I actually was pregnant with one of my sons at Pfizer. And they didn't know uh, because I hadn't told them because I didn't know whether Preston would make it because of all the issues I had had. And I was in training, which was morning, noon, and night. At Pfizer at the time, if you made below an 80, you got kicked out. So I kept getting sick and I thought something is wrong. So I'm sitting there in class with all these people that actually weren't that nice to me because it was so competitive and you were, you were training. If you may blow an 80, you were kicked out and you were training and competing against all these other people. And so I started coughing and blood started coming out of my mouth and they, I looked down and there was blood everywhere. And, you know, all these people around the table were, were there and, I said, I'm pregnant. And they said, what? And I said, yes, they took me to the emergency room. I actually had pneumonia. And, uh, but this is very interesting. You couldn't make below an 80 and I couldn't miss the test. And they said, Christina, we're sorry. We can't make an exception. You have to take the test, but we think you should go home. You've got to get better. And I said, I'm not going home and I'm going to take the test, but I couldn't be there for the the training because they did these trainings and then you took the test so they sent someone to bring me the notes and she said to me i'm not going to help you just because you're pregnant and i don't care how you do because we were like the top two people in the class our scores were the top two two in the class and i remember i had this fever i was so sick but i was determined not to quit and i went and i i ended up being number one in that division in the united states (laughs) in the training. And I just remember, though, it hitting me how competitive it was. And that continued. I I loved the pharmaceutical biotech industry, but it continued the competitiveness and the no one was going to do you a favor. You know, you had to prove like when I transitioned from pharmaceutical to biotech, that was a major deal back then. You couldn't get those jobs. And, um, you know, I was unusual. I ended up getting moved to the medical side and I had when I was at Biogen, I didn't have just one child. I had two children within a year. My younger two are a year apart. And I remember I won the CEO award that year. And the people in my group would not talk to me because they were so upset. How could she win this award? Because I got all this stock and all this recognition, you know, when she just had two kids. But it was because even when I had those children, and I don't want this to be an example to everyone, but I kept working through it. Like I remember being on my computer when I was breastfeeding. I remember flying to Wake Forest to finish a research project and pumping milk in the bathroom of, uh, of an airline and Delta. <laughs> so, you know, it was just, I don't know. I had this drive and I have this probably, I don't know what it's called, this, I'm just not going to quit. And and sometimes that takes you doing things that are unconventional and that, um, and like I said, I wouldn't give this advice to anyone else, but it's just what I did. I was, I was refusing. I, I knew that if I had to do extra, then that was okay because it was my choice to have children. And, you know, the the CEO said to me, Christina, this is not – basically, he didn't tell me 
it was bad, but basically, you know, why did you have two, two children? And again, it wasn't planned, but I, I um, was determined for it not to impact my children and for it not to impact my job either. So I, you know, that was really, that was a, that was a growing up moment. I think for me, um, you know, that's not, my mother was a teacher and a musician and she would rather, I was from the South. So she would much rather I stayed home. My husband at the time was a professional football player. So it was, you know, everyone just wanted me to stay home. But again, I had this internal drive. And when I finally left pharma and biotech, it was because I decided I was going to be a CEO. I wrote business plans. Uh, that was a very hard transition. I have been sued a couple of times because of being in a man's world. And 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 again, I'm glad I'm a female now. You know, I, I, I think men go through hard times. Women go through hard times. But definitely there have been a lot of challenges. I think one of the biggest challenges is not having mentors, not having always people I can relate to. Um, I will tell you in the next in the last two years, I've been surrounded by more and more successful women and men where I feel a little less lonely. But there was a period of time um, of about five or six years where I felt incredibly lonely. There were times I wanted to quit. There were times, you know, I felt like there was no one to talk to, but I just refused to quit. I mean, I just decided, you know, I, I had no option. So I either quit. Here was my thought process. It still is. I either quit or I get better. And so my, my thing to myself is, you know, you, you have these two options. Which one do you want to do? And so I continuously choose to get better. Um, but that doesn't make more people like me. That doesn't make pe- more people be nice to me. Um, in fact, I think it can alienate people. You know, I mean, sitting in a conversation, sometimes I don't always know what to say because I can only talk about, you know, clothes or <laughs> I can only talk about certain things for so long. And then I kind of want to go on to... Um, to other things because I'm always wanting to, to, um, to make things better. But I do, I will say this, one of the, I have all these weaknesses, but I do think one of the gifts that I was given was I do care about everyone I meet. You know, my mother said to me, when you meet people, I always find something good because there's always something good. And I've always done that. And, and so for me, um, you know, I do connect to people. It takes me a little bit longer to get close to people now because I have, I'm sure like most of your listeners, I have been hurt. I don't trust, um, you know, completely until I get to know people. But I also think that's needed in life because I think to openly and blanketly trust everyone is not the wisest thing. And I wish I would have understood that when I was younger. I I don't even know where to start other than I just wish I could give you a hug virtually <laughs> over this. It's such an amazing journey as um, in business, you know, with this leadership journey. I'm really so happy that you're surrounded by much more supportive men and women alike. Just talk to me about, you know, you've been in some of these big corporate environments. What do you think is needing to happen in these cultures to help them, you know, I call it get out of their own way, you know, because you, it's just, you know, I think you and I agree, it just doesn't need to be this way. Yeah, I think that in these cultures, you know, I've I've been to 85 countries, I've worked with governments and corporations, and I see it over and over and over. There's a lack of mentorship. There's a lack of wanting to hear people 
that haven't been there for a long time or that they don't have to listen to. And it's really important. So one of the reasons I think I've been able to take different companies and grow them um, and into different countries and, and different levels is I do listen. I don't care if someone is an intern and they're 18 years old or if they're 24. I feel like they have, I really honestly feel like they have something to offer that your executives don't have to offer because you get so removed and you're at different ages. And so like for me, I've always continuously listened I don't care if someone is 20 years older than me or 30 years younger than me. I really don't. I listen to people equally. Um, This was a concept I know that a lot of people started integrating about 10 years ago, but I've always integrated it. And I continue to do that. And I continue to always, like when new people come into the company, I'm the the chairman of the board of Root Root Brands. And then I also um, am the CEO of, of Dr. Christina Rom LLC. In those companies, when people come in, I always place everyone to learn to meet everyone else and to learn about their job and see how they can work together. And I do activities so that they can, you know, blend their strengths and weaknesses because I believe it's all about strengths and weaknesses. It's not. And believe me, I am pretty hard on people. Like I expect a lot. I expect people to pay attention, to do their best, to show up. Um, I expect people, if they have children and they can't come in, then work later, you know, make it up on the weekends. But I do also understand there's a human element. And I think that's really important. Like you have all these rules, but you still have to understand everyone's different and you have to care. I really believe that. I, I, I don't believe the mentality of it doesn't matter. It's business. You shouldn't care. I do understand it is a business and you have to get things done and you have to succeed and you have to produce. But I also think we're humans. We're not a machine. And uh, we have a lot of that in our lives. Anyway, we use a lot of um, AI. We use a lot of computers. You know, we have things generated now, but I think you always keep that human component. And I think for me, it makes me want to be a better person because I know there's other people that either look up to me or listen to me. And I don't take that for granted. I don't use that to my advantage to take advantage of people ever. I never get on a power trip where I think I am better than them or I'm the chairman or I'm the CEO. So I should be treated differently. I don't do that. Of course, I have assistants around me and different people that help me. And I do understand that my time is valuable, but I also understand so is theirs. And I think for some reason, the higher you get in a company, we lose that. We lose the understanding that we're there to teach. And I think probably, again, this goes back to my family of, of having so many teachers and, and medical doctors and, and people in my you know family I'm always thinking I'm teaching, even though I'm not in front of a class in a college like I used to be. I, I'm there to help people, but I learn from them too. Like I learn every day. We just, you know, left a staff meeting where I think one of the last things I said is, how are you guys doing? Like, how's everyone's family? Is everyone okay? And one of our youngest members, because I just got back from Dubai last night, she said, how are you, Christina? And, you know, I said to her later, thank you for saying that, Leslie, because we have to check in on each other. You know, we're humans. We've got to be there for each other. And I feel like that's something that some of your major corporations don't teach. And I think they need to. I think it needs to be an important part of um, the industry. I think that we've got to change a lot of that. 
Uh, it's so empowering we were talking about. And I think, you know, I've had uh, previous folks on the show, you know, some folks have said it's a little bit of a disease care versus a health care and bringing the health part back um, and yeah. this human aspect that you speak of and not in some mushy way, but in a very realistic, practical and compassionate way. You know, one thing you might um, just offer for listeners that they could do to support their own health and well-being and healthcare. I was curious if you have thoughts for them. Yeah. So I ended up having patents that were approved to reverse aging and to get rid of nuclear waste in the land, air, and water, and in people. And, and, and also with like tumor suppression, I did a lot of different things. And I have 10 more that I ended up um, submitting two years ago. I have developed a line of products at the root brands that um, – are to detox the heavy metals out of the body because the mother passes on the heavy metals to the child and our environment is extremely toxic, whether it's from nuclear waste. You know, nuclear waste does not, it, it doesn't even leave the stratosphere. So it's like all around us, pollution, environmental toxins. And, you know, the World Health Organization, the UN, all your universities know that. But unfortunately, we haven't done anything about it. And and I always say this, you know, um, we bury our heads in the sand when there's all these things that we think we can't fix. And so I always tell people, you got to start by fixing your own life. You've got to understand that you could go to the best scientists, the best doctors to me, like look, pick a person and they don't have all the answers. You've got to look internally for what's right for you. And then you've got to support your body. I believe wellness is so important. Why do we wait until we get sick? We have more cancer now than we've ever had. We have more Alzheimer's. We have more autism because our bodies are toxic. So the line of products I worked on really helps get the toxins out and supports optimization of the body. Um, I, I really um, think that's important, whether people use my products or someone else's products. Focusing on your health is really important. I just left an event in the metaverse in Dubai and I'm going back to meet with the, the government over there. But um, whether you're in the metaverse, and I said this in a talk that I gave, or whether you're in Japan or you're in Nigeria or the United States, it doesn't matter where you are. You have this one house that you live in. You know, I travel constantly, but the house that I live in is my body. And in your body is a li living, breathing city that you have to love and take care of. And just like in the real world, there's toxic people. In your body, you've got toxins and you've got bad cells. So your job has to be to clean those out and support your body. You can live to be 130 years old. We know that. There, you know, If you look at Time Magazine and Newsweek, there's been articles that talk about it. The truth is you can if you take care of your body. And we've forgotten that. We have forgotten how important the air, the land, the water is. We've forgotten how important it is to focus on our mental, emotional health, as well as our, our physical health. And so for me, this is really my mission right now is, is empowering people to believe in who they are and to give their body the best they can give. It, you know, your preservatives in your food are horrible. Your GMOs are absolutely horrific. Give your body natural things and then be part of natural solutions, whether it's Sadhguru and Save the Soil or whether it is, 
you know, the March of Dimes. I don't care. Give back and do good things for yourself because it matters. And it's not just physically. Your mental and emotional health are so very important. So you have to love yourself even when others don't. And I say that because, you know, you can't love others unless your body's okay, unless you're okay. So it's really important to focus on yourself and not in a way where it's just about you. It's not just about gratification. It's about doing something better for yourself and for the world. And that's what I really believe. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, um, folks. DrChristinaRahm.com. You can learn more about her amazing uh, work and some of her organizations there. Uh, we could go on and on. Let me just um, bring to a wrap here a little bit of reflection. So assuming you are where you are, you got the kids and all, just a regret or do-over? I I think that if I could go back, I would um, tell myself at a younger age to to really – empower myself and have more confidence. I really do. I think I would tell myself to listen to my discernment and my first initial gut feeling. I was brought up to love and forgive. And my mother always said 70 times seven, forgive. But I think it's equally important to keep people out of your life that are not good for you. And I, I always had this thing where I was trying to fix everyone and you can only fix yourself. And if I could go back, that's what I would change. I would tell myself it's okay to walk away when someone's treating you bad. Um, I actually went through an abusive relationship. I, I would go back and tell myself that's not okay. You know, you deserve better. And I hope everyone that's in your audience knows they deserve better, whether it's a bad situation at work. You know, my parents taught me to never quit, but they didn't teach me to let people treat me bad. In fact, they used to always say, Christina, you're so focused on loving that you forget that, you, you know, you can't fix everything. And I do think I, if I could go back, I would change that. And I think I would understand that there are bad, there are bad things. <laughs> there are people that don't have good intentions. And I would steer away from that um, a lot quicker than I did when I was younger. I've learned that now. And I, I, I wish I would have learned that at a younger age. And I hope that your listeners learn that because each person is so important. No one deserves to be treated bad. Fabulous. One, uh, one last question. What was it like for you to share your journey with us today? Uh, it was hard. <laughs> I was trying not to cry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not that easy, to be honest, um, to be candid and to be open, but I hope that it helps people somehow and makes their life better. So, Yes, you, my friend, are courage personified. I want to thank you for sharing so generously. You inspire us all to know that we can make a difference and to dare to be the change we want to see in this world. And you, my friend, are a big part of the solution. So if I might be helpful in any way, you let me know. I am absolutely cheering for you and you take good, good care. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I, I really enjoy talking to you and meeting you. So thank you very much. We'll look forward to crossing paths again soon. Absolutely. Okay, folks, my thought for the week, look forward more than you look back. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Christina's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, 
and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 